I'm excited about this. Interesting day today. We are picking up the book of Romans, and this morning we begin making our way through Romans chapter 9. If you are at all familiar with the Bible, you'll know that this chapter of the Bible um, is one of those particularly controversial chapters. Um, Not only is it controversial in the sense that people who do not share our faith find its content controversial, it's one of those chapters of the Bible which has proved controversial between Christians. Um, And there have been various periods of time where that controversy was was bigger or smaller. It's true at all times that there is some themes in the Bible that are offensive in a present minute, and that that, that list is ever-changing, it's not always the same. And now present minute, um, this is is a thing which which has sometimes divided the church Um, And yet, uh, it's important for us to know what it says, because the Bible is God's word, and God has said this to bless us. Um, It turns out that that God is bigger than my imagination. Last last week, we we heard about what it is to have humility before God, the God whose foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. Um, The themes which we are about to start dealing with are ones which even if you understand them, you don't really understand them. They're big, they're weighty, they're complex. Um, God is going to present himself to us as the God who sovereignly superintends over all of his creation forever in, in wisdom and knowledge and in authority. And it is not actually possible for us as mere humans to get our heads around this God completely. He is more complex than our finite imaginations can piece together, and it is a glorious truth. Um, Where are we at so far in the story of the book of Romans? Um, What you would have noticed as we've made our way through this book is that from chapters 1 through to chapters 8 of the book of Romans, really what the Apostle Paul has been doing in this letter is to lay out for us a consistently built argument. Chapter after chapter after chapter, Paul is building on what he has said before, uh, and he's making a a, a sustained argument which has built and built and built until we got to the crescendo of Romans chapter 8, which was something of a celebration of this glorious message of salvation by faith that he's been building since Romans chapter 1. So if you were to sort of chart the message of the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 8 have been an almost single-minded sustained argument. Um, The whole human race has fallen to sin. We can all be saved by placing our faith in Jesus the Saviour who gives us grace. Um, which is, for, and, and, and that culmination in, in Romans 8 finished with the celebration of joy and certainty that salvation by faith brings into our lives. What can separate us from the love of God? We were just, we were just reminded at the end of Romans chapter 8. I am convinced that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Which is funny, because this is the next verse. I am speaking the truth in Christ, Romans 9.1. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That is an emotional whiplash um, that maybe we don't feel because it's been so long since we were in Romans 8. The last time we were preaching it was before Easter. Um, How do we go from... (laughs) How do we go from... I am convinced that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God to I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart in two sentences. What this shows us, among other things, is that sorrow and anguish are a part of a mature Christian faith. 
This is the Apostle Paul speaking in light of the Gospel. That's good news, by the way. It means that we, um, when we carry that sorrow with us in, in our day, it does not automatically mean that God has abandoned us or that we have abandoned Him. It's bad news because it means that this sorrow is going to be a part of our lives, and I'd rather that not be true. What is Paul's sorrow? What is it that has got him in unceasing anguish? And answering that question is going to take up the next three chapters of the book of Romans. That's going to be the main theme of the next three chapters of Romans. And then once that is out of the way, we're going to again pick up the main thread of Paul's argument from 1 through 8. We pick that up again in chapter 12, which will take us through to the end of the book. So that makes chapters 9 through 11 something of a detour. A side note in the main thrust of this letter. We are going to put our minds and our hearts to work to understand Paul's great detour, our great diversion, and see what it is that he has to share with us. What is this little... You know what it's almost like? It's like Paul's been building an engine for us. He's been building a car for us. And we think the car's great. But he has noticed a thing which maybe we hadn't noticed yet, which is a little tick in the engine. And if, if you were most of us, you'd be like, well, there's no lights on, it's fine. Uh, but he wants, to, he wants to fix it and get this thing running, running efficiently. And so he's going, to, he's going to pull it apart for us. Let's get into our diversion. Paul has a problem. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. What Christian is ever saying that? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What's happening here? We have a question. We have a niggle. The question is, has the word of God failed? Is the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus a compromise or a concession to God's failings? Because the Gentiles are coming in and the Jews aren't. Is this new church thing Put ourselves in the, in the context of the first century here where this is being written. Is this new church thing where the Gentiles are rapidly becoming the majority if that hasn't happened already? Is that a failing on God's part? Can you see how that question makes sense from their point of view? Like, th think of this as a first century Hebrew. You have been raised your whole life to believe that on the basis of your being a Hebrew, you are God's covenant nation. You are part of his special people. And now suddenly there is this church thing which is claiming to be God's people. And scandal of scandals, Jewish people are rapidly becoming the minority in the thing. The Gentiles are coming in in droves. And many, 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 many of the Hebrews are staying away. Not just staying away. 
actively opposing the gospel. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, who was watching all this happen through his life and his own ministry, as he plants church after church after church, is a Jewish man. And he is grieved to his core that the Hebrews are rejecting his message and his ministry and his saviour, and therefore they are rejecting salvation from God. He knows full well. If there is only one name under heaven by which we must all be saved. If salvation is by grace and through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. And the Hebrews are refusing Jesus. Then in what sense are they God's people? Some of them are coming to Jesus. All of our apostles are Hebrews. Our Savior is a Hebrew. The church has many Hebrew people in it but it's rapidly becoming evident that most of the church are not. It's not what he wants. What does Paul want? Paul wants his countrymen, according to the flesh. He wants his fellow Israelites in the church as believers, worshipping God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he wants, and he's not seeing it happen. And so what's going on there? The question is, how is that just? Aren't the Jews meant to be God's chosen people? Why aren't they all coming? Has the word of God given to them so long ago? Through the prophets, the patriarchs, has that word failed? Isn't that what God said about his word through the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 say this, I have a slide for you. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth. It's a nice day to read that, isn't it? Uh, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater and mildew to Matt's roof. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which, um, that which I purpose and, that, and, it, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isn't that a great picture? The rain falls and does its thing, which is to make things grow. And um, God here through the prophet Isaiah says, that's just like my word. It falls like the rain and it accomplishes what I sent it for. It is inevitable. It's a certainty. There's no doubt. It will accomplish the, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But the Hebrews crucified and rejected the Messiah. They're now opposing the gospel. Has the word of God failed? Now, we, we don't often ask this question in this way, but I've heard many people say to me over the years, I can't see how the Old and New Testaments talk to each other. They, they just seem like different things, different religions, like God started again. We, we have that, don't we? So this is the question that needs answering. This is, a, this is a huge problem. We don't realize, I think, because we're so accustomed to hearing it, that the message of salvation by faith alone is a, is a biblical scandal. Has God contradicted himself? It urgently needs an answer. And the answer is massive. Massive. It blows open categories of thought that we hold dear. It is culturally revolutionary. It's complex. It's mind-bending. 
It's almost impossible to comprehend, even when you've been filled in. It is earth-shattering, and even at times, frightening. It pierces the veil and demands that we stare into eternity for just a moment as we grapple with an infinite, uncreated, eternal, and triune God. It's challenging, both intellectually and emotionally. I'll be here for a while. (laughs) And yet at the same time, this answer, the same answer, after devastating us, rebuilds and remakes us with a new fundamental certainty and a trust in God, which is of a kind that can endure trials without faltering. See us through safely and securely into our Father's arms. This answer is a thing which (laughs) Christians have not just disagreed on, but fought over. At times, it has even come to define the difference between denominations and fellowships. There have been periods in history where this was so controversial that those who fell on one side of this debate believed they had no fellowship with those on the other. Fortunately, we don't live in those times. As a pastor, I have seen this answer grieve people. I've seen it frighten them. I've seen it lead people into a period of doubt, which should cause us to ask, is it even worth talking about if we risk that kind of cost by opening this up? Is it even worth talking about? I would reason that these three chapters of God's Word are here for a reason, and that we should trust Him more than we should trust ourselves. And I hope and believe that understood and embraced, what this is going to do is to create in us some of the greatest strengths that we can possess in this world. What God said through Isaiah is true. His word will accomplish that which he purposes it. And this is going to give us a new humility concerning who we are before our big God. This is going to rescue us from arrogant pride before him. It's going to give us a new comfort as we trust that big God to be God when we are not. Even when it's all falling apart. And it's going to give us a new hope. A hope which will send us out into the world in confidence that we will see the very gates of hell fall before us as God fulfills all which he purposes. You ready for it? Has the word of God failed? The answer is no. It's been great worshipping with you this morning. We'll see you next week. (laughs) God has not failed. His promises are still good. We had misunderstood, this is the answer, we had misunderstood who the promise applied to because not all physical descendants of Abraham are included in God's promise to Abraham. Not all biological Jews are God's people just because they are Jewish. 
That's what, that's what Paul just said at the end of Romans chapter 9. Not, who, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Is that it? Is that the world? And, oh, this is a big setup for not much, isn't it? If only. That would be it, if only, if not for the fact that this, this question leads to another question, which leads to another question, which leads to another question. Kind of like when you've got a woolen jumper with a loose thread, and the rule is don't pull the thread, but it's a loose thread. <laughs> I'm going to pull the thread, and then not long after, I'm going to buy a new jumper. <laughs> this question leads to another, which leads to another, which is what becomes such a big deal. The implication is this. If not all Israel is Israel, who are God's people? Like who, what decides who gets in? What decides who comes and who doesn't? Realize here we're speaking in ultimate and eternal terms. Bigger than the span of a lifespan. Not just, not just like, who's making, who's making that decision? If the front door to salvation is faith, why do some people come in and others not? Especially the Hebrews. That's the implication of that answer, isn't it? To show us how God's word really is doing what he promised through Isaiah and accomplishing all for which he purposed it, which involves both us who are turning to believe and those who aren't, the Apostle Paul is going to take us to the Old Testament and to show us this is how it has always been. These things have always been true, and as he does so, he will be drawing out conclusions that get more and more profound and speak to the nature of the universe in a way which is so surprising. Today we'll be looking at the first two Old Testament case studies for Paul's reasoning. Make our way to verse 13 and stop. When we first divvied out this passage, I was meant to go all the way to 29. And this is going to be long, and I'm only going to 13, so be grateful later. Let's keep reading. Case study number one. It's the story of Isaac and Ishmael, which we find in the book of Genesis. Before showing us how God's word is succeeding, Paul has to deprogram some mistaken assumptions about what God has said. This is, this is what he's doing. This, this case study, this example from the book of Genesis is going to show us that biological descent does not get anybody included into God's people. God's promise gets people included into God's people. Biological descent does not decide who gets included into God's family. God's promise decides who gets included into God's family. To us, this seems obvious, but in his context, it needs defending. And this absolutely has implications for us. Once again, come with me back to the first century, speaking to, uh, thinking of a Jewish audience here. This was the direct hope of many of the Hebrews. I belong to God because I am a descendant of Abraham. I belong to God because I am a descendant of Abraham, a child of Abraham. Some of them pull out this line in an argument with Jesus in the Gospel of John, for example. This is their words, not mine. Jesus says to a group of Hebrews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A quote so, so well known by us, it's worth memorizing. 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And these Hebrews respond, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They've been currently conquered by the Romans. So they're wrong politically, at the very least. Before them, it was the Greeks. (laughs) Paul has to deal with this thinking in order to show them what is true. Romans 9.6 It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In quotes, that's, that's directly from Genesis. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. What's going on here in the book of Genesis? Uh, Many of you will remember that God told Abraham and Sarah, or should I say Abram and Sarai, they were going to have a child, even though they were very old, and Sarah was barren, and they were childless up to this point. That child, that promised child, was going to be God's vehicle of blessing, not just to Abram and Sarai, but to the world, and be the beginning of a great nation who would belong to God. This is all God's promise. This promise is one that is going to carry down through generations until the descendants of Abraham are like the sand on the seashore. Abraham, we are told, believed God, and God counted that as righteousness. But then the baby didn't come for years and years and years. No baby. So Sarah and Abraham hatched a plan together. It was a great one. Let's give God a bit of a hand and help this promise come about. They decide together that Abraham, Abram, should marry Sarah's servant as a second wife and have a baby with her, which of course is what we call a great plan. (laughs) What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Quick lesson to us all. (laughs) You do not have to engineer God's promises into being true. They require no manipulation. When God has told us to do something, we should do it. But where his promises merely require trust, trust is enough. Reverse engineering God's blessings causes calamity. In this instance, the servant girl, Hagar, which I know is a Viking name through the comics, and I don't think is a particularly appealing woman's name. Hagar has a son, Abraham's firstborn son. And they name him Ishmael. And then, a little while later in the book of Genesis, 
Abraham and Sarah are again talking with God. It's a bit like, look what we did. We made the child a promise. Aren't we clever? We did it. Of course, God is quite upset with them. And he explains that he had specifically promised that Sarah would have a child. And therefore, Ishmael is not the promised child. And a bit later on in the story, Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac, the child of promise. Now, this is the situation. Abraham has now got two biological sons. Both of them are children of Abraham. Do you you feel what I'm saying? Isaac and Ishmael. And Abraham's firstborn son, which is a big deal in these ancient cultures, especially in regards to inheritance, Abraham's firstborn son is Ishmael. And Ishmael is not the child of promise, is not in God's line of promise. Isaac, his younger brother, is. To which, of course, if I said this in the first century, the entire Jewish audience listening to me would say, yes, of course, we know this. Jews traced their ancestry to Abraham through Isaac. Arabs traced their ancestry to Abraham through Ishmael. Historically, those two nations have not gotten along particularly well, to say it mildly. You can thank Abraham and Sarah for the current state of the Middle East, by the way. Hang on. If being a physical child of Abraham is enough to make you God's people, can't the children of Ishmael make that claim too? And they do. There's a reason why people talk about the Abrahamic religions, meaning Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They make that claim too. If it doesn't work for the Ishmaelites, how could it work for the Hebrews by that rule? Do you feel it? We have to conclude that inclusion into God's people is not about mere biological descent. Not all Israel is Israel. Just because you've been born into the right family doesn't mean that you are part of God's people. It is not because of ancestry alone. The line of promise does not run neatly down a bloodline. God has special purposes for the Hebrews as a nation, but that does not mean that every individual Hebrew on the planet is included in that promise. And so, this would have us conclude that when individual Jews do not place their faith in Jesus as Savior, God's word hasn't failed. Because he never promised that all of them would. He never promised it. God's promise is still working exactly as intended. The promise is still going to its intended targets. The children of promise are still coming home, are still placing their faith in Jesus, are still becoming the inheritors of the promise to Abraham, are still becoming like the sand on the seashore, are still becoming a blessing to the nations, are still entering into God's eternal kingdom. True Israel is still coming home. God is still, even today, rescuing the children of the promise, which includes us, even if we're not Hebrews. 
Having believing parents is important for a great many reasons, but it is not ultimately decisive in predicting whether or not you will come to faith. If only it were so easy. God's promise is what decides. This is the claim from Isaiah. This is what the promise said. It depends on God's promise. This matters to us in a couple of ways. First of all, hear me, all of you, children of believing parents. Just because you have believing parents does not mean you are a Christian. Does not mean that you are a child of God. Your parents' faith can't save you. Your faith saves you. You need to pursue God for yourself. You need to place your trust in Him, and you need to follow Him. Likewise, hear me, all of you, children of unbelieving parents. Their unbelief does not disqualify you. What it shows us is that what inclusion ultimately depends on is God's promise. The quote, the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. So we've got to end of case study number one, answering a simple question, and yet, can you already feel it? Oh, that raises some implications, doesn't it? That idea, is it's uncomfortable. But it's important. And our passage takes this even further. So let's keep pulling at that string. Next in his reasoning, Paul takes us to the family of Isaac. We jump down a generation. Case study number two is the case study of Jacob and Esau, who are Isaac's children. Isaac has inherited the promise to Abraham. What will it look like in his family? How will his children inherit this promise? Do you feel it? Isaac's kids. Are they going to be in the line of promise and follow God and come to faith? Of the two we are considering, only one will. Romans 9, 10 through 13. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's God speaking. The, the previous example told us that it is, not, um, it is not the children of the flesh who are the inheritors of God's kingdom. It is the children of the promise. What this bit tells us is that it is not our works which decides who gets to be a part of God's kingdom. Here's the next part of the story. Next part of Genesis. We're still in Genesis. Isaac grows up, the child of promise, and marries Rebekah, who conceives twins. Two boys in the womb at the same time. 
We're told it feels to her like the twins are even fighting with each other in the womb. I watched a hilarious video this week of a baby in the womb trying to ninja its way out of a belly button and almost making it, from what I can tell. That's just one. I, I, my respect to anyone who has carried more than one human inside them at a time. I can't imagine. The twins are fighting in the womb. And God speaks to Rebecca whilst she is pregnant and gives her a prophetic explanation of what is going to come. He tells her that these two men in her womb will become two great nations who will both be at war with each other and that ultimately the older will serve the younger. And then after they are born, this proves true in their lives. To the ancient mind, surely Esau, the twin who comes out first and is thus the firstborn, should be the inheritor of God's promises to his father. And yet again, it is not so. As their lives play out, Esau trades his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. A birthright which kind of includes his place in God's family. Esau does not follow the Lord. He is a man's man. And her suit, gentlemen, means hairy. He's into hunting. Wild game. Seems like a good bloke. Hostile to the Lord. And he does not inherit the promise. And then finally, at the last, Jacob tricks Isaac in his older years, tricks him, and receives his blessing, which was intended for Esau. Which has led many to conclude that the reason Jacob inherited the promise and Esau did not was because Esau didn't treat it as precious and Jacob did. Because of their different actions. Because Jacob was righteous and Esau was unrighteous. That's why God's promise went to Jacob and not to Esau. But it doesn't work. For one, if you read the whole story, Jacob is not a shining beacon of goodness. The man was a scoundrel. He is fairly unlikable, often dishonest, even to his own family members. If I was to pick someone in the Bible to portray a pirate in the movies, I would pick Jacob. He is the Jack Sparrow of Genesis. Savvy? This man deceived his dying father who had gone blind so that he could rob his brother of his blessing. That is not a righteous man. Even Jacob's conversion story is fairly interesting. When he finally becomes a worshipper, God changes his name to Israel, which means wrestles against God. <laughs> Paul points our attention to a different part of this story, still found in the scriptures, right at the beginning, when the brothers were still in the womb together, and God told us what their lives were going to look like. This is the context where God tells Rebecca what these two boys' lives were going to be like. When Rebecca had conceived children, Romans 9.10, 9.11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election 
might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older would serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. After then, after God said these things, Esau rejected God. And Jacob embraced him all those years later. And so we have to conclude something, don't we? What determines who is coming in through the door of faith and who isn't? What we know, it's not biology. Those are twins. Both of them are children of Abraham. Both of them are children of Isaac. They both have the same biological claim to God's promise. It's not because of works. It's not because of deserving and goodness. It's not because of what they have done that God has found them acceptable. They are still in the womb. And God chooses one and not the other. Paul quotes Malachi when when he said with the Lord's leading, Esau I hated, which we bristle at. It's uncomfortable. And now... (laughs) He just comes out and begins to say positively what it is that makes this decision. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, here's what it is. In order that. Remember when you read that? In order that? To sow that? This is a purpose clause. This is a sentence used to explain intent. Destination. Why was it this way? So that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. We have two words that we now need to consider. Election and calling. Because of these two things, we can conclude that God's word has not failed. Election and calling. In the context of this passage, all those Hebrews who are not coming to God are not children of the promise. And all those Hebrews who are coming to God, and what's more, all us Gentiles who are coming to God, are coming because we have been chosen and called. These are the ones promised to Abraham. These are the children of promise. This is true Israel. God's word has not failed It has had the effect of calling the chosen, and they are all coming. And now we are in controversial waters. This is the difficulty. This is the disagreement. This is the discomfort. This is what has divided and torn the church apart for so long. This is what is so painful for us to wrestle through now. This is also the biblical answer to that question. Election simply means... Choosing. The elect are the chosen. Yesterday, this nation chose its representatives through an election. We still use these words. Election means choosing. And in the Bible, it is God who chooses, who are his. Calling is a word which is used to describe what it means when God miraculously compels someone to come to him in faith. It's used in other ways elsewhere in the Bible. 
And so in theology, this specific kind of calling is called effectual calling. The call which has a definite effect. Who is doing the choosing? God is doing the choosing. Who is doing the calling? God is doing the calling. And God has chosen and called those whom he will in order that his purposes in choosing might stand. God's choosing fulfills God's purposes in God's promise. On what basis is God choosing? On the basis of his purposes. We'll get into that way more next week as we continue to work our way through this passage. But it is not on the basis of the merit of those chosen, which is good news. It is not because of us, but because of him who calls. Let's get pointier. Why did Esau reject God? The answer is because God did not choose Esau. Why did Jacob come to God? Because God called him after he chose him. Why Jacob and not Esau? Because of God's purposes. Undefined, unexplained. Jacob was the undeserving recipient of God's electing grace, God's choosing. And Esau was not. Instead, Esau received exactly what he deserved from God. The same applies to Isaac and Ishmael. One was chosen and called, and one was not. And the same applies to unbelieving Israel, who Paul is grieving over. Some are chosen and called, and some are not. Let's, let's just have it. The same applies to us here today. It's heavy, isn't it? If we are here today as a believer in Jesus, it is because God chose you and God called you and brought you home. But now we start reacting. This is, this is, this is where our minds are going and our hearts are going. This usually provokes a reaction in us. And before long, isn't, isn't there just a word that rises to the front of our minds? Just crystallizing even now, ready to summarize our objection to this part of God's word. Unfair! Isn't it? How is that just? How is that right? How is that even? How is that equal? And when you ask that question, I, I hear you and I understand. I have felt all those things myself and occasionally still do. In fact, the very next verse of this passage predicts that question and goes on to address it. Romans 9.14 says this, What shall we say then, in light of everything that we've just read, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Oh, good. I'm glad that's sorted. Yet we need to stop somewhere. So we're going to delve into those questions in more detail. We're going to, we're going to examine the mechanics of this and how it could be fair next week. That's going to be that sermon. Rather, 
this week to end, I want to take you to another place, which is to the destination. Paul has begun to argue to us that salvation ultimately depends on our big God and not on small humans. And that is true to a further extent than we would ever realize and fundamentally breaks the assumptions of our culture about how the universe works and what our place in it is. There's a useful thing to do when considering God's truths, especially the ones which are difficult, which is to look into the distance and consider their destination. Let's, like, like just, just for this moment, let's step past our difficult objections, knowing that we are going to circle back and address them properly. But let's step past the objections that we might want to work through, and instead put our eyes on, if this is true, where does it lead us? You feel that? These themes are going to occupy our attention for the next three chapters of this book of the Bible. It is a big theme. What is that time going to achieve in us? Why bother putting ourselves through the the hardship, the possible pain and confusion of wrestling through such massive themes? I remember when I first heard this stuff, I could see it was difficult. I could see the bits I don't like about it. I could see why it felt to me as being unfair or, or different to what I thought I knew about God, and I could not see why anyone would want to believe this. Where are the positives? When, when people today reject this idea, and so many do, usually it's in the name of, of, of fairness, or because it clashes with what they have previously been told God is like. Um, <laughs> I remember when, when Elise and I were first wrestling through this, one of the things that she said to me, and I, I remember it distinctly, She said, it sounds like a different God than the one I know. Have you ever felt that when looking at this? (laughs) And another conversation said to me, it makes God seem smaller, less gracious. I spoke to Elise this morning. That is not her current opinion. This morning she told me that these themes give her peace that isn't dependent on her. She said that this has helped her to escape from the ladder of works righteousness, feeling like even though she's a Christian, she has still got something to prove before God will like her. She said that it has increased her trust in the Bible as God's authoritative word and helped her to make sense of how the whole thing fits together because this theme is littered across your scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. I asked her, would she trade those gains? the comfort of avoiding thinking about this. <laughs> she said, not on your Nelly. Paraphrase. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, the fact is that this part of God's word is here for a reason, and that reason is because our God is kind to us. It is for his glory and our benefit that we as believers would give our attention to this portion of his word and allow it to shape both our view of God and how we live our lives in light of his truth. This three chapters of God's word are here to accomplish something in us and those goals are beautiful and whilst some portion of them can be achieved by those who reject this truth, it's not only Christians who have this view who believe these things, you understand, but these things will create these things in your, in your life in a way that denying them cannot. 
So let's finish our time in the Word together, just, just by really quickly gazing into our near future and seeing where this is going to lead us by the end of chapter 11. First, as we, as we delve into these themes, God is going to build into you, his children, security and assurance. Security and assurance. Romans 10.13 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is calling on the name of the Lord, because the Lord has called them, and he is calling them because he has chosen them, then of course everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's certain. God is not going to change his mind, and it doesn't ultimately depend on the quality of your faith. That matters for other reasons, but not for this. Romans 11, 5 and 6 say this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Brothers and sisters, that's you. That's you. My salvation is all of grace, entirely by grace. Nothing but grace, undeserved kindness from my Creator. It is entirely in His hands, not mostly in His hands, not 99.9% not in His hands, entirely in His hands. Our God is sovereign. He really is bigger than my circumstances. He really is in charge he really is superintending over this creation down to the level of my faith in him. His will really will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And because of that, I am safe in his hands. Come what may. I have certainty and assurance because God is sovereign. Secondly, and I love that this is here, Romans 9 through 11 is going to teach us that one of the implications of God's sovereign choosing is that it sends you and me into the world on mission to see the other lost saved. This, this needs saying, because this idea has been twisted and perverted throughout history. There have been those who have said, in light of God's sovereignty, what purpose do evangelism and prayer have? Do away with them. Why pray if God has decided beforehand? Why witness if God chooses, and they are perverting the word of God and making it say something it does not say. This is what the word of God says. Right here, specifically after introducing us to the theme of God's sovereignty. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach? Unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This doesn't cancel mission, it sets it on fire. It enables it, it gives us confidence. That's a big theme of chapter 10. It sends us in the confidence and the assurance of knowing that the God who chose us has chosen others. And when he calls, they will come. And for some reason, God has chosen that his effective calling will enter this world through your mouth. 
And so they'll listen to you. And they'll come home. And not one of God's will be lost. God's sovereignty sends us in confidence that the hardest of heart can come home. No one is too far gone. We should not preempt in a lack of faith that someone else is a lost cause. Third, this passage will produce in us humility before God, which is appropriate for our Creator. Do you know what I think the hardest verse in the Bible is? Romans chapter 9, verse 20. We'll get to it next week. It says this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? What we are encountering here in the book of Romans is a very high view of God and a very low view of me. It puts me in my place, to put it bluntly. And that's a good thing. It robs me of my boasting. It, it, it takes my arrogant objections to God's glory and silences them. It takes my inappropriate questioning of him, puts it to shame, and corrects it, and calls us to trust God as God and to stop trying to replace him at the helm. It's a good thing. We need that. Because we live in a day, don't we? Which tells us that truth is found within. Which tells you that you're beautiful just the way you are. Which tells you that your rights are defined apart from God. We need God to be God. And we must bow before him. And lastly, and this is the one that I hope we all get to, it takes a while sometimes, is that these things, these specific things, these offensive and controversial and difficult themes of God's word produce worship. Worship. I, I remember when I was first wrestling through these things, um, I, I didn't like them. I rejected them. And it was after entering the ministry that I became convinced that this reading of Scripture was true. So as a pastor, I had to change my mind on these things. Luke saw it happen. He was there before me. He laughed at me the whole time. But then I baptized him, so I won. I went from hating these ideas to reluctantly believing them. Have you ever experienced that with God's Word? Where you're like, I can, I can see what it says. It's true. I just don't like it. And I can honestly say that since then I have moved from reluctant belief to joyful belief. These truths are precious to me. I would prefer God be this way than not. This produces worship in me. As he unpacks the immensity of our sovereign God's plan, the Apostle Paul gets to the very end of chapter 11, before we go back to the main thread of the book, and he stops, and rather than arguing, he praises. We're going to do a whole sermon in these, in these four or five verses. I think Mike is preaching it. I can't wait. It's going to be a good one. This is the outcome of understanding who God is. Romans 11, 33 to 36. This is what it produces in our hearts. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? They can't be unscrewed. Just, it's too complex. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him in order that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word in that it rescues us from a man-centered view of religion and instead pulls us into, ever further into, a faith which is about you and not about me. We have so many questions, so many doubts, so many concerns. It is so difficult to understand in so many ways. And yet we would ask, Lord, that even before we begin that process of wrestle and, and questioning and attempting to understand, that at the very least we would believe what you have said is true. That we would assume that you know better than us. And even if this fallen and finite preacher get some of the details wrong, that your voice would be heard and understood. Have your way in us. Your will be done, not mine, on earth. Your will be done, as it is in heaven. As Jesus prayed, that this cup would pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. As Paul would pray and teach, to live as Christ and to die as gain, that we would see it to be true, we would experience it in our lives, that all who are yours come home, and that we would see them come in greater numbers than we could ever hope were it to depend on us or them. that your justice and your goodness, your perfect plan would rule and reign in this world unopposed. Give us comfort. Give us security. Give us hope. Give us humility. And teach us to worship you as you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name.